Why don't you guys go ahead and take your Bibles and open them up to Ecclesiastes. I think most of you guys know this, but this is going to be the focus of our semester for the next four months. We are privileged to get to plunge the depths of this marvelous, marvelous text, particularly looking at chapters 1 and chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, right after Psalms and Proverbs. And in light of us studying this for the rest of the semester, what I want to do is sort of set the course for this wonderful, wonderful embarkment. Um, I just sort of want to give an overview of the book of Ecclesiastes uh, this evening. We're going to look at the first two verses of chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And even before I do that, I just sort of want to reason with you guys uh, just for a little bit. Um, I, I want to prove to you you can see that on your handouts, that life is meaningless without God. And this is going to tie in great to uh, this overview and to the book of Ecclesiastes because that is the resounding, the resounding message of this book, is that life is meaningless without God. One of the biggest questions in life is what is the purpose of life? What are we here for? What is this life all about? And there have been lots of people, lots of views put forth to answer that very important question. And all those people and all those views, in my opinion, can be summed up into some type of ism, Aristotelianism, Platonism, liberalism, utilitarianism, pantheism, pragmatism. There's all these isms. And some of them say that the meaning of life is to be created by the individual. That is, there's no divine creator right? We get to bestow meaning on our lives. Some say the meaning of life is to attain the highest form of knowledge. Some say the meaning of life can only be determined by science, by science. Some say the meaning of life, they, they, they respond to this, what's the point in asking? What's the point in asking? Some say it's to care and look after nature and the environment, and the list can go on, and I think you know this. So many ideas put forth answering the question as to what is the meaning of life. But what's most interesting about all those ideas and all those belief systems and all those isms is that so many of them deny the existence of God, and yet, hear me out, they still put forth an answer as to what the meaning of life is. They deny the existence of God, yet they still assert and insist that their life has meaning. And, and again, what I want to do in our introduction is sort of take that idea to task. Uh, I'll, I'll state it clearly for you now. If there is no God, then there is no meaning to life. If there is no God, then there is no meaning to life. When you rid yourself of a divine creator, then you rid yourself of meaning, of meaning. And so many people deny this. So many individuals that you interact with on MSU's campus would deny this. They deny the assertion that if there is no God, then there is no meaning. They say we still can find meaning to life, and I don't think you can. I want to prove this to you, that you can't. Again, I just want to ration with you for a little bit, and then we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 and sort of give an overview of the book. And in proving this to you, I think it's fitting to talk to you about a belief system that I found to be most interesting. A belief system that is atheistic, that is they don't believe in God, and yet, they admit, because far and few between actually do admit, that there really is no meaning to life if you believe that there is no God. And that belief system is called nihilism. Nihilism. Nihilism 
basically says that life is meaningless. Life is meaningless. Nihil is the Latin word from which nihilism comes from. And that Latin word means nothing or that which doesn't exist. We get our word annihilate from the Latin word nihil, which means to bring to nothing, to destroy. Nihilism and nihilist say that all values are utterly worthless and that nothing can be known or communicated. They're often called skeptics and pessimists, and you can see that, right? They sort of got the Eeyore personality walking around saying there's no meaning to anything, there's no purpose. Frederick Nietzsche is the person most often associated with nihilism. He was a mid-19th century German philosopher. Nietzsche said this, he said, every belief, every consideration of something true is necessarily false because there is simply no true world. <laughs> right, pessimist. There's no truth. There's no true world. He completely denied all imposed values and meaning in life. He denied them all. And the reason he did this is because he denied the existence of God. Actually, it was Nietzsche who first coined the term, God is dead. God is dead. In one of his most famous writings titled The Gay Science, he said, God is dead. And Nietzsche well understood the consequences of such a statement, of declaring such a thing. He knew what that led to. Actually, he gave an illustration to convey the consequences of such a conclusion as God is dead, i.e. God doesn't exist. And he, he used a madman, a madman going into a marketplace of a lot of people. And this madman entered into the marketplace and was looking for God. He was looking for God. I seek God. I seek God. And all these people in the marketplace, they were atheists. They didn't believe in God and they mocked him and they laughed at this madman. They said, did God get lost, or is he hiding, or maybe he has gone on a voyage or immigrated? They taunted the man. God. God. God is dead, they said to the man. And then the man turns to them and gives them some sharp words. And basically what he says is this. Do you realize what you've done in, with this assertion? Do, do you realize what getting rid of God does. Do you realize that? The crowd stopped and looked at, looked at the madman in silence and astonishment. And he says, I've come too early. He says, this tremendous event is still on its way. That is the consequence of asserting that God is dead. And the point of Nietzsche giving this illustration is this, that men don't yet recognize the implications of their atheism. They don't yet realize it. People deny and they're blind to the fact that when they get rid of God, they destroy all meaning and all value. The madman says, do you realize what you've done in asserting that God is dead? There's no meaning. There's no more meaning. The true atheist, the true person who denies the existence of God is a nihilist. I actually put that at the bottom of your handout as a conclusion. I want you to remember that. If you do away with God, life has no meaning. When you do away with God, you sink down. You plunge into the deep, dark abyss of meaninglessness. And again, so many people try to deny this. So many people try to deny this, and they're wrong. 
They're incoherent. They're illogical. They are nonsensical. There have been a lot of others who acknowledge this truth. A lot of modern day, a lot of famous names that are atheists that recognize the conclusion that are actually, actually real about the conclusion when they say God is dead. Names like Bertrand Russell, William Provine, Alex Rosenberg, Richard Dawkins, the leading atheist of today. Dawkins said this, quote, the universe as we observe, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, which he believed, no good, nothing but blind, pitless indifference. Bertrand Russell said this. He said the universe, as I have understood it, is purposeless and void of meaning. He said the entire sum of, of human endeavors is destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. These are what the modern-day atheists are saying. And they're being logical. They're being logical in their thinking because they assert that God is dead. Alex Rosenberg said this, What is the purpose of universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. Does history have any meaning or purpose, he asks. It's full of sound and fury signifying nothing signifying nothing. If you do away with God, you do away with meaning. There's two proofs that I want to give you before we look at our text, two proofs. Life can either have meaning in two ways, from the outside or from the inside, okay? From the outside or from the inside, objectively, to put it in other words, or subjectively. And I want to look at the first one. Can life have meaning from the outside without God? Can life objectively have meaning for the atheist is my question. And the answer is no. And the reason the answer is no is because those who reject God believe, tend to believe in naturalistic evolution. And many of you guys are familiar with this. They believe in cosmic evolution followed by biological evolution, which believes in the formation of solar systems over billions of billions of years. And it all was initiated by the Big Bang. And that was followed by billions and billions of years of natural variation and natural selection, taking life from its elementary form to the complex form. If you don't believe in God and you don't believe in the creator, that's what you believe. You believe in cosmic evolution and you believe in biological evolution. And people who believe in that and don't accept that the universe has a mind behind it, they must believe that they are the product of a mindless unguided process, a mindless and unguided process. And a mindless and unguided process, hear me out, we're asking a question, can an atheist have objective meaning in life? No, because they believe in naturalistic evolution and it's a mindless and unguided process and a mindless and unguided process can have no meaning. Listen, naturalistic evolution, ladies and gentlemen, has no purpose, it has no end, it just is. It just is. Naturalistic evolution says we were all brought here by happenstance. We're all random. We're arbitrary. That's all we are. Edward Hume wrote this. He said, Darwin's brilliance was in seeing beyond the appearance of design and understanding the purposeless, merciless process of natural selection. You catch that? He said Darwin was brilliant. He looked past God 
He looked past design and saw the purposelessness and the mercilessness of natural selection. Lawrence Krauss, another leading figure in the atheistic world, said, we're just a bit of pollution, speaking of humans. He says, we're just all pollution. We're all pollution. If you got rid of us, he says, the universe would be largely the same. We're completely irrelevant, close quote. We're completely irrelevant. Another author said, Darwinian evolution was not only purposeless, but it also was heartless. A process in which nature ruthlessly eliminates the unfit. The great human mind was nothing more than a mass of evolving neurons. Worst of all, there was no divine plan to guide us. These statements are by leading atheists of today's day. No process, I mean, it, it, no meaning. We're, we're just happenstance, we're irrelevant. And they have to believe that. Again, because naturalistic evolution is a mindless, unguided process. It's just random. It just is. And so most atheists would affirm, they would agree, okay, Deontay, you're right. Objectively, my life has no meaning because I'm just happenstance, I'm just random. But I can bestow meaning on my life, okay? I can bestow meaning on my life. And I want to take that to task. That also is false. That also is false. Can life have meaning from within without God? From an atheist's standpoint, okay, objectively life has no meaning, but can I, can I bestow meaning? That has two major flaws. Two major flaws. The first flaw is this, the subjectivity of meaning. If we bestow meaning on ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, everyone is going to have a different meaning, right, based on their preferences, and life's meaning can be anything that we want it to be. And we can't say that one person's meaning is better than ours. And we're going to have some serious problems if we do that. Because some people are going to say, well, the meaning of my life is to exterminate the Jews. Hitler. Someone might say, well, the meaning of my life is to molest children. Some people might say, yeah, the meaning of my life is to slaughter children. The meaning of my life is to sit around all day and eat donuts and play video games. A lot of you guys are like, oh man, I don't like that. <laughs> you see the issue with this? That idea is unlivable. It's unlivable. It's the first problem with trying to bestow meaning intrinsically, subjectively. The second issue with that is that life has no objective meaning. <laughs> and if life has no objective meaning with the with which the atheist would agree to, then you can't bestow life, or you can't bestow meaning on your life. It's impossible for someone to confer or to argue for subjective meaning when life has no objective meaning. Example, let me give you an example. If I say the Bible as a whole, this book, it's all meaningless. It's pointless. All of it. And then I turned to John 3.16 and said, you know what, that really means a lot to me. It's really valuable. You're going to look at me like I'm crazy, right? <laughs> It's a contradiction, and yet atheists do it all the time. They say, yeah, I'm the result. I'm just happenstance. I'm random. I just came about from a mindless, unguided process, but I'm going to look inside and find meaning. Cornelius Van Til brilliantly captured the incoherence and absurdity of that statement with this illustration. He said, doing that is like this. It's like a man made of water in an infinite, bottomless ocean of water trying to climb out of water by building a ladder made out of water. 
Okay. <laughs> That's what they're doing, though. When they say, yeah, I'm just random, but I can look inside and find meaning. It's like a man made out of water in an infinite bottomless ocean of water, trying to climb out of water by building a ladder of water. The atheist that rightly affirms the objective meaningless of life cannot dig himself out of that hole of meaningless. It is impossible. Impossible. Everything they do is meaningless. Everything they say is meaningless. Everything they touch is meaningless. As Nietzsche says, there's no true world. Nothing's true. Life can't have meaning subjectively either. Can't have meaning objectively, and it can't have meaning subjectively. And again, I just wanted to reason with you and just show you, not even looking at the text, which we're about to dig into, just from a purely rational, logical standpoint, the person who is an atheist must be a nihilist. They cannot have meaning in life. But you and I are people of the Bible, amen? Amen. We're people of the scriptures. What does the Bible have to say about this very thing? Well, this takes us to our text in Ecclesiastes. Look with me, if you will, at verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Again, what I want to do is sort of walk through these two verses and then just sort of give an overview because we're going to be studying this rich, rich book for the next two months. And what I want to do first is talk about authorship. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. There in verse 1, look at it again. It says, the words of the preacher. Solomon was a leader. He was the assembly leader, the leader of Israel. He was the one when the people gathered together, he would publicly declare to the people, thus they declared him the preacher. And some people, ladies and gentlemen, just, they're just a bunch of liberalists, if I'm being honest. Some try to deny Solomon's authorship. They try to deny it. But it's abundantly clear in the opening verses of this book that Solomon is undoubtedly the author. Look again at who this preacher is in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. These qualifying qual- These qualifying statements make it abundantly clear that this is Solomon. Actually, the book of Proverbs opens up the same way, the exact same way, the exact same way. And this is so important to maintain that Solomon actually wrote this book. It's because Solomon was a man who had a lot and knew a lot. I was just talking about this with a guy as we were meeting and greeting. Solomon was a guy who had a lot and he knew a lot. And again, I think that is so important as we look at this book because of the quest that this book goes on or the author of this book goes on. The quest is given in verse three in the form of a question. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? What profit does man have in all of his work and everything that he endeavors in which he does under the sun. And under the sun is a very important phrase as you study the book of Ecclesiastes because Solomon is basically asking the question, what's the meaning of life? But he's narrowing in, he's snipering at this question. And he's getting very particular. And he's saying, what is the meaning of life under the sun? That is not transcending into the heavenlies. That is, when you take out God from the equation, what? 
is the meaning of life. What's the purpose of life without God? And if that is the quest of Solomon in this book, if that's the question that's to be answered, ladies and gentlemen, you will want someone qualified to answer that question, wouldn't you? You want someone qualified. You will want someone who has done it all, Solomon, and you will want someone who knows it all, Solomon. Solomon. Guys, <laughs> this book is so special. I've been thinking about this. If there was any book that I can give to an unbelieving college student, okay, minus the Gospel of John, it would be the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> it would be the book of Ecclesiastes because of the quest. The quest is take away God, don't transcend into the heavens, just keep everything on earth under the sun, and what's, what's man's life? What is man's life? Well, we don't go... We don't have to go too far. He answers that question. Back up to verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All, there at the end of verse 2, refers to verse 3. All the work that man does if you take out God under the sun. All that man does under the sun if you remove God from the equation is vanity. And vanity is also an important word. When it comes to this book, it's mentioned 35 times. I mean, if someone can really just briefly in a word sum up the book of Ecclesiastes, it would be this word, vanity. Vanity. It's the Hebrew word, hevel. Hevel. And examining this word within the context of this book and the context of the Old Testament, it's most accurate to define this word, to define this word as meaninglessness, valuelessness. The Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, says this, that this word basically means no use, no value, no purpose. This word is used 13 times, vanity, 13 times elsewhere in the Old Testament. And, and almost every time, it speaks of an idol, of an idol. And the reason for that is because the way God sees idols is that they're of no value. They're insignificant. Actually, look at chapter 2, verse 11. Solomon equates this word vanity with two things, and I think you get a good picture as to what this word means. He says, Thus I consider all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. So vanity is equated with striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. What's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life when you remove God, when you don't transcend above the sun, under the sun? It's meaningless. It's of no profit. It's of no advantage. No advantage. And not only is it of no advantage, listen, Solomon's really going to hit you where it hurts. It's completely without value. It's completely without advantage. Look at verse 2 again. Not only does he say vanity, he says vanity of vanities. <laughs> He's really trying to stress this. Vanity of vanities. He says it again. It's like saying Lord of Lords. What do we mean when we say that? He, he's the highest Lord, right? What do we mean when we say holy of holies? It's the most holy place. It's the same thing going on here. This is a Hebrew superlative, if I really wanted to get technical. It's an exaggeration. Solomon is saying this. Life under the sun is utterly meaningless. He's really trying to stress it from the get-go, from the outset. I want, I want to make something clear to my readers. Life without God is utterly meaningless 
meaningless. It, it, it's extremely meaningless. It's meaningless of the highest order. And guys, this is the point of the book. This is the point. So this is what I'm going to be preaching to you for the next two, two weeks, so buckle up. This is what Matt's going to preach to you as he gives you five messages in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I, can't, I really can't wait to get there. That's going to be wonderful. But life without God, it's all for naught. There's no purpose. And the cool thing, what I want to do now, is just sort of survey the book. What Solomon does after he states the purpose of the book after he states his conclusion of his quest as to whether life has meaning without God, he basically goes on for the rest of the book to prove this. He proves that life indeed is meaningless for the rest of the book. He demonstrates that life is meaningless without God. Solomon takes everything that men and women, everything that you and I, right, try to find meaning and satisfaction in, and what he does is shows how they really don't satisfy how they really don't give meaning. And he starts off with creation. Look at verse three. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Verse four, a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Some try to say the purpose of life is to care for and to look after the earth. Pantheist, baloney, baloney. Let's change the world. Let's make the world a better place, right? And they do this. <laughs> Solomon says, nothing ever changes, verse 4. <laughs> nothing ever changes. And then he goes on and gives examples of this. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets and hastens to its place and rises again. The wind, verse 6, blowing toward the south turning toward the north, and the wind continues swirling along. And, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. And the rivers do the same thing. Verse 7, verse 8, all things are wearisome. It's just tiring. Circular again and again and again. But there's something new, Deontay. There's something new that I've discovered. Verse 9, that which has been will always be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing, what, new under the sun. Then some might say, see, this is new, verse 10. He says, already it's existed for ages, which were before us. Just poking a hole in it. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's already been done. It's already existed. There's nothing new. Want to find meaning in creation? You're not going to do that. What about wisdom, though? Knowledge? Plato believed that the meaning of life was to attain the highest form of knowledge. That's what he believed. It's what Socrates believed. The meaning of life is to get all the knowledge I can into my head. What does Solomon say about that? He had a lot of knowledge, right? Look at chapter 1, verse 16. He said, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. That is, all the kings who preceded him. And my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, the opposite of wisdom. And I realized that this too is also striving after the wind. In other words, it's pointless. It has no meaning. Look over at chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12, he basically says the same thing. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. 
For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. <laughs> they both have the same end. Verse 15, then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it would also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. There's no purpose. Look at verse 16. For there's no lasting remembrance of the wise man as the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, he says no one's going to remember me anyway in all this knowledge that I have, right? In all this knowledge that I have. It's pointless. Ah, but what about pleasure, Deontay? We, we can find meaning in pleasure without God, can't we? Fill our bellies, day and night make merry. Hedonism. Let your days be full. Dance and make music day and night. These things are the concern of men. That's an ancient poem that advocated hedonism. Sex, drugs, things. I can find meaning in those, Deontay. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I would test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored my mind, how to stimulate my body with wine, while my mind was guided, guided me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for sons of men to do under the few years of their lives. Verse 4, I enlarged my work. Verse 5, I made gardens. Verse 6, I made ponds of water. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. I did it all. Verse 8, I also collected for myself silver and gold and treasure of the king provinces. Verse 9, then I became great and increased more than all who proceeded. My wisdom also stood by me. All my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I mean, I just indulged. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because all my labor and this was my reward for all my labor. What's his conclusion? Verse 11. Thus I consider all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted and behold, all was vanity. <laughs> so meaningless and striving after the wind. Matt's going to unpack this next month. He's going to do a wonderful job. But Solomon's point is this. It's all meaningless. Pleasure, sex, money, he says, I've done it all. It's driving me after the wind. It's all fleeting, isn't it? So short-lived. So short-lived. Makes me think of 1 John 2. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away, as well as its lust. It's passing away. It's short. It's fleeting. Ah, okay, I have one, Deontay. What about work? I'm a hard-working man. I can find meaning in work. And if not work itself, I can find meaning in the fruit of my work. Buy lots of things, buy the biggest house, lots of boats, lots of toys. I can find meaning in that. Isn't this so good for our heart? <laughs> this is so good. I love how, what Solomon's doing. He's just picking it apart one by one, picking it apart. Work? 
Let me just give you the short answer. No, can't find meaning in work. But what about the fruit of your work? What about the fruit of your labor? The big house. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor. <laughs> Pessimist, huh? No, I, I would say a realist. He's a realist. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun, for I must leave it to another man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor, which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labor with him. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does man get in all his labor and, and in striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Don't even get to enjoy it. Look over at chapter 6. He says the same thing. Chapter 6, verse 1. He says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it's prevalent among men. What is this, Solomon? Well, verse 2. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he has desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them. For a foreigner enjoys them. That is, someone outside of him. He doesn't get to enjoy it. <laughs> he says, this is vanity and a severe affliction. Work itself can't satisfy, and even the fruit of your work can't satisfy you. Are you trying to find meaning in there? Even believers, are you, are you trying to find meaning in what you can get from your work? I'm just telling myself as I study, I'm, I'm saying, Deontay, take his advice. <laughs> He's been there. He's done that. Take his advice. Take his advice. What about justice? I can find meaning in justice, right? These people are trying to find meaning in doing what's right. They, they place their hope in the justice system and in the law. Doing what's good and upright. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Solomon says, furthermore, I've seen under the sun that in the place of justice, there is wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. <laughs> I'm going to put my hope in, in, Boz, in the Bozeman Police Department. I'm going to put my hope in the American militia forces. They're, they're, hold, they're upholding what's right. They are doing what's good. He says, in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. There's wickedness. And down in verse 18, he basically says, we're just beasts. This proves that we're just beasts. We're just beasts. We're evil men. We want to do what we want to do. Okay, what about relieving oppression? Okay, I can't find, can't find hope and justice. What about relieving oppression? What about helping those who are oppressed, right? Bringing about freedom, going to the Himalayas, going to Africa. I can find meaning in that sort of the Mother Teresa of life, if you will. I can ensure the fairy tale story is for everyone, that everyone has happiness. <laughs> Look at chapter four. <laughs> then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed 
and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors, what? Was justice? No, he says there was power. Power. But they, they is referring to those who are being oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. They had no one to comfort them. Solomon's point is this. If you remove God from the equation and you look at life raw and uncut, so often the evil person wins. So often the evil person wins. And so what does he conclude? Look at verse 2. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. (laughs) I congratulated people who are already dead. Verse 3, he says, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed. He said, if this is life, and this is all that life is, you shouldn't have even existed. Don't, Don't even come into this world. Don't come. It's not worth it. If you take God out of the situation, if you take eternity away, this is what you have. The evil man prospers. In the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. No meaning. No meaning. I want to show you just a few more. Actually, just one more. Just one more, and I'll end there, because this is really, right? I mean, as you read this book, it's like, man. A lot of people have a hard time reading the book of Ecclesiastes. Actually, one guy just told me, he said, man, yeah, I was just so down. I was so sad. I was like, I, I, I see why. I see why. Everything meaningless. But remember, he's saying when you take God out of the equation, everything is meaningless. Okay, what about riches, Deontay? I, I can find it there. Satisfaction in the dollar, right? Some of you watched the big fight that just happened between McGregor and Mayweather. Money Mayweather. I can live for the dollar. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. We can just go home after that, right? We know where he's going. (laughs) Nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. This too is vanity. It's pointless. It's pointless. It's not going to satisfy. Actually, look over at chapter 6. He says this. Chapter 6, verse 7, he says, All a man's labors is, is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is what? Not satisfied. <laughs> Guys, you're not going to sat. Again, I'm telling myself, Deontay, listen to Solomon. Listen to Solomon. Listen to Solomon. He's been there. You're not going to find satisfaction in it. Verse 8, For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to live and walk before the living? What the eye see it's better than what the soul desires. And basically, Solomon says it's, it's the destructive life of, of our appetite. It's going to destroy us. It's better to just see than to desire. Because we have a ravenous appetite, a lustful appetite that is destructive. It's not going to satisfy. We can never get there. And so here's what Solomon's doing. He's pulling the rug out of everything. He's pulling the rug under everyone's feet and saying this, without God, it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Even as the believer, do you believe this? What are you trying to find satisfaction in? 
And if Solomon hasn't pulled the rug out of that, just come to me after the message and I'll point you to where he does. I'll point you to where he does. Everything. No purpose. And as Solomon has done this, as he's proven his case, the verdict is out, everything under the sun is meaningless, he anticipates those who reject his assessment. Well, no, no, but I can find meaning in riches. I know, I know what he said, but I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. He says, whatever exists has already been named. And it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. What's his point in this? It's kind of hard past to understand. His point is this. Listen, all that man is is known. And his point is God knows man better than man knows man. God knows you better than you know you. You can't dispute with him. You can't argue that all these things really have meaning because God knows you better than you know you. But then we try to add words. Look at verse 11. For there are many words which increase futility. He says, then when you open your mouth, you just start to, you just start to prove it. You, still, you just start to dig yourself a hole. Verse 12. For who knows what's good for a man during his life? During the few years of his futile life, he will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after under the sun? Who can tell a man? In other words, who can tell us the purpose of life? We can't figure out it because we're sinners. Because we're sinners. There is one. You guys know it. It's God. It's God. Solomon's point is there's only one who can tell you what's after this life. There's only one who can give satisfaction in this life. And so what is the meaning of life? Well, skip over to chapter 12. As we close, looking at verse 13, we're going to talk about this at the end of the semester. I'm going to close and preach on this passage, but I'll just give it to you now. This again, it's just an overview. Solomon gives the conclusion. The conclusion, when all has been heard, when all has been tested, after I've pulled the rug out of everything that you try to find satisfaction in, here's what life is all about. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. Some of your versions says this is the whole duty of man. This is the purpose of man. This is the purpose of man. It's to live for God. So the question is, what are you living for? What are you trying to find satisfaction in? Because Solomon's just proven, again, this is a guy who's had it all. And he, he knew it all. If you don't believe me, on your own time, read 1 Kings chapter 10. I mean, a dude was was a trillionaire, literally, in today's dollar. He was a trillionaire. He had it all. And he's looking back at his life, right? We, we saw that last week. He, he didn't end well. He looked back at his life, and he gave us this precious text to help us. Wisdom. So that we can truly walk a wise life and look back and have no regrets like he did. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this passage. This is a rich text as a whole. Lord, I am so, so thankful, Lord. So, so thankful. And I know my brothers and sisters here are so, so thankful for the book of Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon is helping us out. He's trying to spare us. He's trying to tell us he's been there. 
He's done that. He's seen it all. And he says, if you try to do it without God, if you try to find satisfaction without God, he says, it's not going to work. It's all meaningless. It's all pointless. Lord, and I pray that you've revealed that to, to some of the people here today. You've revealed that to my heart, and you're continuing to reveal it, and you will continue to reveal it to us, Lord. I just want to pray for the person who's out there who's been trying to find meaning away from you. The unbeliever who's tried to find meaning in sex, find meaning in money, and whatever, in work, in the fruit of their work, in the good that's being done in this world. Solomon says it's all meaningless without you. I pray that the unbeliever would hear that, that they would turn, and that they would know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would fear Christ because he's coming back, he's coming back to judge, and that they would, they would see that he has offered them life and life abundantly, true life, true life. There is so much joy in fearing you, Lord. There's so much joy in keeping your commandments. They are not burdensome. They're for our good. They are for your glory. And Lord, I pray for the unbeliever that he would see that tonight, that they would turn or she would see that tonight and turn from their sins and believe upon the Lord and turn away from all these things that will not satisfy. And again, for the believer, Lord, just continue to teach us because, Father, we're not perfect and so often we and I can look in satisfaction at things of, these, of this world. Solomon says it doesn't satisfy. Fearing you and living for you is the best thing that we can do and it's because we were created to do this. So remind us of this, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.